right. Well, again, good morning to you. Glad that you're here this morning. Uh, special welcome to guests and visitors in the house with us this morning. And as always, a special welcome to those of you joining us via the live stream as well. We're continuing a teaching series in the book of Romans this morning. So I invite you to find a Bible and open up to Romans chapter 7 with me. Romans chapter 7. If you made your way in here this morning and you forgot your Bible or perhaps you don't even have one, perhaps you could look around under the chairs in front of you or behind you, you should be able to find a Bible and we'll be on page 943. 943, that'll get you to Romans chapter 7. And this morning we're going to be picking up where we left off last week in Romans 7. We looked at the first few verses, so as we read this in the next few moments, it might seem like you're kind of walking in on the middle of something, and you indeed are, right? We're picking up midstream in an argument that a guy named Paul was making last week. Romans is part of the Bible, a letter written to the church in Rome, and the purpose of this letter is to help a bunch of Christians living in Rome a long, long time ago live on mission with God. And he's talked to them in the first three chapters about the justification that God provides in Jesus Christ. We'll never be able to justify ourselves. God has to do this, and God has done it, praise God. And we see that in Romans 3. That argument continues up to chapter 5. And then we're in part of, it, we're in part of this book that, i got to tell you, might, might be some of my, my favorite parts of Romans. In chapters 6, 7, and 8, it tells us how we as Christians, how we change. Because you think about it, we've been invited to participate in the mission of God. There are many obstacles to this, and most of the obstacles are in here. It's our own sin that keeps us from loving God and obeying Him in His world like we ought to. So Paul talks to us about how we change as Christians. I love Romans 7. I hope God will speak to us from this chapter this morning. And let's, let's ask Him to do just that. Let's pause with a word of prayer. Let's pray together. And friend, with your head bowed, I just ask that you would ask God to speak to you from Romans 7. God, you know where we are. You know what's going on. God, I ask that you would speak to us from your word. Spirit, we ask that you would be our ultimate teacher. God, overcome weakness and brokenness in me. Overcome distractions in our minds. God, speak to us and show us Jesus and show us how all of this is good. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 7. I'll start reading in verse 7. We're going to go down to the end of the chapter in 25. It can be a bit long, so just hang on and we'll get through this together. Here we go. Romans 7, 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known my sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, 
produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. We're in verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might, might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not, I do, not do what I want, but the very thing I thing I want to do, I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good thing I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be that when I, I, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This passage contains one of the most famous verses in all of Scripture. And it speaks to the reality of life that you and I live in this world. Consider with me, have you ever known that there is something that you should not do, but you can't help but do it? And how many more times is this true when we know there's something we shouldn't do, but we find ourselves doing it, especially when we even have a rule telling us not to do it? Think about it. You're driving to work and you're running late. The speed limit sign says 45, but you're rushed, so you're pushing 70, right? You know you shouldn't do it, right? It's 5.30 in the morning, nobody's around. You just find yourself doing it. You're trying to lose weight, right? And now I'm not looking at you when I'm looking around. I'm just looking at you, okay? You're trying to lose weight. You know you ought to be cutting calories. You know you ought to not be eating carbs after three and doing more cardio. But before you know it, watching a little TV at night and you get out the roll of cookie dough again and you just start eating it, right? You know you shouldn't, but you just find yourself doing it. We know there's things that we shouldn't do. We even hear a secret from our friend, and I'm just trusting you with this. It's like, oh, you can trust me. 
Yeah, no problem there. And then, you know, before we know it, we find ourselves telling people, hey, listen, I'm just telling you so we can pray for him, okay? We know we shouldn't, but we do it. We know this problem. Every one of us have this problem. One of the most famous passages in Scripture is right there in verse 15. Paul says, I do not understand my own actions. Everybody in the house said amen and amen to that. For I do not do what I want to do. But the very thing I hate to do is what I find myself doing. This is so, so practical. We felt this way. We know this. We know there are things that we ought to do, that there's something inside of us that just keeps us from doing it. So I want this problem to lead us to a question to meditate on for the next few minutes together. Here's the question. How does life change happen for a Christian? If this is true, how is it overcome? If this is reality, if this is what we walked in here this morning feeling, I shouldn't do that. I can't help it. I'm going to do it. If this is true, how is it overcome? How does life change happen for a Christian? I want you to be encouraged if you find yourself thinking this question this morning because Romans 6 through 8 was designed to answer the problem. Think about it. Romans chapter 6 talks about truths related to life change. Romans chapter 7 talks about the heart to which those truths must be applied to. And Romans chapter 8 is about the applications of those life change truths to the heart. And in this, we see really the message could be summed up in a phrase for us. We have a problem. We can't fix it. That's why we need Jesus. I want to talk to you about it, just taking you through these different headings. We have a problem. We can't solve the problem. God has to help us. That's all he's really saying here in Romans chapter 7. So let's walk through it and consider it together. We see right there at the start, we have a problem. We know what we should do and we can't do it. This is exactly what he's talking about in chapters eight to, in, in verses 18 to 19. We feel divided in our hearts and we shouldn't feel this way because God created us to be whole. God didn't create us to have these divided hearts that we have. He didn't create us to have these natures that feel like they're split. We have only one nature, but because of sin, because we have disobeyed God and everyone who has gone before us has disobeyed God, we feel a fracture in our souls. Things don't feel right. Things don't feel like they're working straight. We we feel out of whack. We feel out of sorts. We know there's something good we ought to do, but we can't bring ourselves to do it no matter how hard we try and how hard we want to, we just can't. That's why God created us whole. We're broken because of sin. And we need God to do something about this because no matter how hard we try, we can't take our broken hearts and put the pieces back together. Many of you know a story that talks about this very, very thing. The story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Robert Louis Stevenson grew up in a Calvinist home, a very Reformed tradition. And he knew there was some moral law that all people everywhere must hold to. He knew there was a sense of right and wrong that all people everywhere, they knew. But he didn't know how that was to be worked out in the life of a Christian. So he writes the story. Many of you may have heard it. If you haven't, I'll kind of summarize a few parts for you. The story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. 
Jekyll is a seemingly good person, but he knew there were some issues. So he creates a potion to divide out his two selves, to try to isolate the good self from the bad self. If you like, he even tried medication to try to fix his problem. And as he tried splitting out his selves by medicating himself to try to isolate the bad so he could control the bad, he found... Mr. Hyde, Edward Hyde, one day committed a murder. He found that when you actually got that evil self separated from the good self, that he was actually more wicked and more terrible than he ever imagined he really was. After he committed the murder, he said, no, this has got to stop. So he already tried medication. Then he tries behavior modification. He says, I'm going to be really, really good. I'm going to stop this. No more potion because I can't control it. I can't control the timing and I just lapse into the other guy. I am going to try really, really hard to be really, really good. See, at the end of the story, though, he actually kills himself because that right there is a dead end. You can't go down it and you can't find hope and you can't find healing. Incredible story. It's actually a kind of dark story, but it proves the point. We can't change ourselves through medication or behavior modification. We need something different. And I want you to think about it. His problem isn't that he was a bad guy with bad tendencies, though it was. His real problem and how things actually escalate in the story is how he tries to fix himself by being a really, really good guy. He can't do it. See, think about it. Paul keeps talking about the law. He keeps turning to the Mosaic law over and over and over again. The law, things like the Ten Commandments. We talk a lot about it. We're not, to, we're not referring to the civil laws that you and I live under in North America today. We're not talking about the laws like um, legal age to drink and the legal age to drive and the prohibition to try to do both at the same time. We're not talking about those laws. We're talking about God's law. We're talking about God's standard. God's way that we ought to live. And friends, I submit to you that every single person in this room, every single person in this city, every single person alive in this world today, they know of God's law. Think about this. We know there is some cosmic standard of right and wrong. Yeah, we might know, not know all the details of what he's contained for us in the first five books of this Bible, but in a moral sense, we know God has some standard of what is right and what is wrong. We know the problem, but here's what we do. We try to fix ourselves and we try to solve this problem by taking God's perfect standard and trying to bend our crooked and sinful lives to fit his perfect standard. We're a lot like Jekyll. We try to fix ourselves by being really, really good, and it doesn't work. And even if you disagree with this this morning, imagine if I invited someone up here on stage only to slap them in the face, no matter how much you want to kick and scream against the fact that you know there is some type of standard that all people everywhere must hold to, you know we all know God's law in some cosmic sense, you would look at that and you would say, that's wrong. Because we know. 
we know because the Bible is absolutely clear that all people everywhere know about God's standard. Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us God has put a sense of eternity in our hearts so we may not be able to search out the beginning from the end. We know in Hebrews 8.10, God says, I will put my laws in their mind and I will write them on their hearts. We learned in Romans 1.19-20 that God has revealed himself to all people in creation. Think about it, friend. We know God. We know of his standard. We can't live it out. And we are without excuse. This is what Paul has been saying. He said it in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. We have a problem, don't we? We know there's a thing that we should do, and we can't bring ourselves to do it. There's a problem. And here's the problem with the problem. We can't solve the problem. (laughs) We can't fix ourselves by trying Harder, And that is exactly what so many of us try to do. This is the way I try to solve this problem in my own life. Oh, that's what you want, God? Watch me do it. And I, I try to bend my sinful heart to fit his perfect standard, and it doesn't work. But this is our problem. And we double our trouble by trying to fix it. Paul is writing to a bunch of Christians who are prone to drift into works and humbly... And anyone who's a teacher of God's word, we can learn from how Paul handles, it, handles things at this point. Humbly, he talks about his own sin and his own spiritual journey and how we can be made right with God. And Paul's going to teach us something about God's standard, God's law. We might be tempted to start thinking, man, this law is a hard thing. This law is a bad thing since it alienates us from God. You're going to actually going to hear Paul say many good things about the law, how the law is good, how the law is moral, and how the law is spiritual. Paul's like the law isn't the problem. The problem is something else. So Paul talks about his own self. He talks about himself as being a really religious guy, a guy who knew a lot of the Old Testament, who knew a lot of the law, who was trying really hard to please God and to live a good life. And he says it was actually the law that found him out. Think about it. Look, at, look, look with me at verses 8 through 9. Chapter 7, verses 8 through 9. Paul takes us on a biographical sketch of how he became a Christian. And listen to what he's saying. He's saying, I was spiritually alive before God. I was spiritually alive. I, I thought I was alive. I thought I was well until I understood God's law. See, I felt like I was good. I felt like I was alive because I read the law. And and this is the crux of his argument. I read this law. I read about God's rules. And I thought, and I was wrong to think this, I thought it was all about external performance. So think how it worked in Paul's life. He knew the first commandment. Don't bow down to other statues. Check. Never done it. Honor your father and mother. No problem. Call mama once a week. Text dad every once in a while. Got it. But then he's able to think, well, I'm I'm doing great. This is all about external performance and conformity to God's standard. Man, I'm not committing adultery. I'm not stealing. I'm not killing. I did kill a few Christians, but you know. And all of a sudden he gets to the last of the commandments, the 10th commandment, which is do not covet. And when he found himself at the 10th commandment, this commandment isn't about external performance. It isn't about behaviors that everyone can look at and see and how they can judge you and figure out how you are and what you're doing. 
This one right here is about the heart. And it's when Paul looked into his heart, he saw that, yeah, it seemed like he was living a good life by his outer actions. It seemed like his life was matching up with God's standard. He knew in his heart that he was a broken man. He knew in his heart when he heard that commandment, do not covet. He heard the very rule against the thing that he shouldn't do. It's like me saying to you right now, do not think about purple elephants, right? Purple elephants popping up all over the room right now. Paul heard the commandment, do not covet. He looked in his heart and he saw that that command not to covet exposed his own covetousness and sped up the covetousness. Think about this. The law is good for Paul because the law revealed his sin. This is how the law works. He tells us in, chapter, in verse 5, which we didn't read, that the law actually has a greenhouse effect on what's wrong with us. It speeds up the growth. It, 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 it expediates the issue of what's wrong with us and what's broken inside. We see in verse 13, the law doesn't make us less sinful, but it actually makes us more sin, sinful. See, Paul wasn't lost because he was bad. Paul was lost because he was trying to be really good apart from God. And we double our trouble by trying to fix ourselves. Trying to take God's perfect standard and our twisted lives and just bend it out and straighten it and try to make it match. That makes things worse, not better. If you could remember Jekyll and Hyde for just one more moment with me. One day... Jekyll became Hyde without the potion. Jekyll says, I was sitting in the sun in Regent's Park in London, thinking about how well I was doing. And at that very moment of vain thought, I looked down and I was once more Edward Hyde. He became a bad person, not in spite of his goodness, because of his goodness. He became the thing that he never wanted to be, not because he was trying really hard not to, because he was trying really hard not to. Think about it with me, friend. Our problem in keeping the law, it isn't something that's out there as much as we like to think it is. Our problem in obeying God's standard is in here. We might be tempted to think that keeping God's law is something that we're prevented from doing by our our situation. Perhaps we might even have blamed our circumstances before. If I wasn't born into this family, if I didn't marry this person, if I didn't have these kids, if I didn't have that boss, if I didn't have this tough time right now, then I would be able to live for you, God. But Scripture and everyday experience testifies that that's not true. Because the problem isn't out there. The problem isn't trying to get you. The problem isn't waiting around the corner when you turn to get on your street from work. The problem is in here. You've seen the, the, the thriller, or perhaps even the horror movies of the person who's running from the bad guy, running down the halls, running through doors, slamming, 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 trying to hide, trying to get away, only to get into their room at last to slam the door. And then the lights come up and the villain is standing behind them. See, the problem wasn't out there all along. The problem is in here. Our problem isn't with the law. Our problem is with our own indwelling sin. The law just points it out. Our problem isn't in our circumstances. It's not in something crazy around us. Sin is not something out there. It's something that's in here. And if we follow this logic all the way, we should because Jesus did it all the time. Hell 
isn't somewhere that we ultimately go, though it is. Hell is a reality that finally overtakes us from within unless God stops it. You feel the weight of this? This is heavy stuff, right? And you have to go through the heavy stuff to get to the life change. The problem is pride in the self. Last thing I'll say on this point, and we'll move to the solution. Think about it. Trying to be really, really good can actually make you into one of the most annoying people that anybody knows. (laughs) Think about it. You know this is true. Think about it. You're short with other people and their problems. You struggle to show compassion when other people that are broken and are trying to get through their brokenness, you struggle to show compassion. You often find yourself being incredibly impatient with people that just can't seem to do it right. If you want an example of like what this looks like, look no further than the Apostle Paul. A really, really good guy, didn't bow down to other statues, called his mom and dad every once in a while, and ran around town killing Christians. And he had a twisted heart. And all that got found out when he saw the law for what it is. You see, friends, changing external behaviors won't happen on its, won't happen on its own. To change the fruit on the limb of a tree, you have to change the root that the tree is grounded in. We have to stop looking to something other than external performance in order to find our justification before God. I hope you can see it. We need a complete transformation. We can't simply apply the moral law to our wills. We can't simply try to be really good and stop being really bad. Behavior modification and medication won't cut it. The only way to be healed, the only way to change is to admit that you can't change yourself. And this is the solution. This is it. Only God can help us. We can only be made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Only God can help us. We can't keep God's standard of the law, but it must be kept. And friends, listen to me. This is one of those things where if you finish this right here, if you finish reading this text, if you get up from it and you think, now I've got to go live this life, if you leave this thinking, man, I've got to try really hard to bend my will to fit God's once and for all, you're missing it. You really are. You're missing it. Because God never intended for our hearts. You could think of our hearts as just a, a, a massive mess of just twisted, wrought iron. You can't straighten that out on your own. In fact, the strongest of people or the strongest of machines that was able to untangle this knotted mess of the steel of our hearts and straighten it out, it takes so much work, it takes so much effort. And if you manage to straighten it out and you hold it up against God's standard, how long are you even going to be able to hold it? The problem with that is that that steel We'll do one of two things. When you let go, it's going to snap back to the way that it was, or it's going to break. God never intended for your life to change by just straightening yourself out. God intends for you to change by thinking about who Jesus Christ was for you and letting that melt down the steel of your hearts. Let God reform your heart, and then you go and you serve him in this world. 
Think about how this works. We can't keep the law, but it must be kept. The law isn't the problem. Our own indwelling sin is the problem. The law should lead us to Jesus. It holds up a perfect standard. The law is intended to work on your mind where you're like, I don't have that. I need someone who has that. The law is not the problem. Our sin is the problem. The problem isn't out there. The problem is in here. And to get right with God, we have got to turn from rule keeping and standard bearing. And we have got to turn to trusting in Christ. That's what happened for Paul. That's my own experience as a Christian. And that's the experience of everyone who comes to Christ. I'm going to quit trying to forge my own way. I'm going to start accepting Jesus as the only way. You see, it's all about Jesus. Jesus perfectly obeyed the law for you. Allow this to melt your heart down. Jesus obeyed the law in his life. He obeyed the law in his death. He obeyed the law in his resurrection. And he perfectly obeys, keeps, and upholds the law as he reigns as the right hand of the Father right now. He perfectly kept the law for you. He kept God's standard, which you can never keep. So think how all this can work out in your life. We know our problem. We can't fix our problem. And God offers us only one way to be right with him. He sets forward Jesus, who's the only man who kept the law, who's the only man who lived the perfect life. And he says, you trust him in faith and you'll be made right with me. See, the justification that God provides through Jesus is the great theme in the book of Romans. We learn in chapter 3 that God justifies sinners by faith in the blood of Jesus. You can only be made right with God by grace through faith, and it's all about Jesus. That's the only place that you can trust in order to be made right with God. This is the main point of Romans. We know that we need righteousness. I need a perfect record, and I don't have it. And that's why you have Romans chapter 4, which teaches one of the most beautiful truths in all of Scripture. It says that those who trust Jesus in faith, God takes all the righteousness. He takes all the st- Standard. He takes his perfect life of Jesus and he credits that and he imputes that to you. You can have the perfect record that Jesus has. You can have a history of obedience with Jesus has if you would only trust him in faith. God will take everything that's good about Jesus and he credits that to your account by taking everything that was wicked in your account and putting all that on Jesus on the cross. This justification that God provides in Jesus is the great theme of Romans. Then we have chapters 6, 7, and 8 that teaches us how it's all worked out in our lives. His perfect record becomes our perfect record as we trust Him in faith. God's provided this complete salvation and this perfect salvation. So now, with that in mind and with that in view, let's ask the question one more time. How does life change happen for a Christian? How, do, how are we going to do it? Right? With all this in mind... How are we going to do it? You say what Paul said in chapter 7, verses 24 to 25. Life change happens as you say the three things that Paul says at the end of this chapter. Paul says, wretched man that I am. Notice the first step to life change is to admit that you're helpless. He does not say, I'll try harder. I'll do gooder. He says, I'm broken. And somebody's got to help me out. It's where life change starts. Could it be that many of us desire life change and we've heard of this gospel of grace, but then we've fallen back into a system of works. We know God's justified us by grace through faith in Christ, but we think we're going to change somewhere other than that. The gospel is the way that we're going to change. 
He says, I admit that I've blown it. I admit I'm a bad guy. I need help. Second thing, he says, who will save me? Who will rescue me from my sinful ways? Notice he's done with attempts to fix things. He's done with attempts to rescue himself. He doesn't say, I will rescue me. He says, who will rescue me? And look where he concludes. This is where life change happens. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He looks up, looking away from himself, looking away from his own ability to keep rules anymore. He looks to God and he says, I see who saves me and it's not me. I see who I'm going to trust in to make me right before God when I stand before him in judgment. And it's not me. I'm not going to come to God with some puny record that I tried to live on my own. I'm going to come, I'm going to stand next to Christ, and all I'm going to have is faith in him. That's what I'm going to trust in. So here's how life changes practically worked out in our lives. At the very moment when you were tempted in this next week, in that moment, you can try really, really hard to be good. Or you can think of how Jesus was perfect for you. And you can allow his obedience to comfort your heart that it's now been credited to you as your obedience. And you can let the gratitude of meditating on the gospel in that moment drive you into obedience. See, Romans 7 ultimately tells us about the two wars that a Christian fights in. The first is from verse 1 to verse 13, and it's the war that you cannot win. It's the war against your own sinful nature. It's your war against the law. It's a war that you cannot win. Thanks be to God, it tells us about a second war that we cannot lose, Christian. It tells us about the war that we fight overcoming our sin, and it, we can't lose, but Christ has already gone before us, and he has already fought the battle for us. We simply labor, and our labors are not in vain. Jesus doesn't expect holy perfection out of your life. He doesn't. He expects you to pursue the law. He expects you to pursue obedience, but he does not expect a holy perfection out of your life. He does expect a holy direction out of your life. Friend, if you would just consider, because of Jesus, you are now enabled, you are now freed up to live a life of obedience to God, not out of a fear of being condemned by him if you do something wrong, because there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's a beautiful truth that we get to look into next week.